0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're The the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, The Trade Guys take a deep dive into President Biden's new Buy America executive order. They'll explain what the order does and how it might impact the economy and supply chains. Plus, we'll discuss why the EU is considering new export restrictions on vaccines. And we'll explain why China overtaking the United States as the top destination for foreign investment shouldn't cause panic. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we're back, and it is week two of the President Joe Biden administration. President Biden vowed this week to buy America, or as we say, buy America, and President Biden vowed on Monday to leverage the purchasing power of the United States government the world's biggest single buyer of goods and services, to strengthen domestic manufacturing and create markets for new technologies. So what impact, guys, could the executive order have on the U.S. economy and supply chains?
1: Well, very little in the short run. Uh, Like most executive orders, it's a directive to various federal agencies to come up with new rules, and it gives them six months to do it. So for six months, it won't make any difference after that it depends on what they come up with basically they want to they want to redefine what's american because if you look at, at the statistics now i think the chamber of commerce says 97 percent of federal procurement is already american and half of the rest is overseas purchase for overseas use you know the, the, the embassy in london does not shop at safeway in washington you know they shop in london and nobody complains about that but you know what that what that 97 percent hides is parts and components that may not be American. You know, the product is American if it was finally assembled here. But if it was assembled with lots of foreign parts and components, then, you know, it may not be quite as American as the Customs Service says it is. That's what they want to correct. The directive is to increase the parts and components content requirement, which historically had been 50%. And now Trump, I guess on his last day in office, second to last day in office, raised it to, 55, although that hasn't gone into effect yet. But the, the idea is that maybe they'll raise it more than that. I think they want to repeal an exception for what's called uh, commercial off the shelf stuff, They're mostly information, communications, technology products, because the, the way the exception works, they don't look inside the box. You know, if it's a laptop, you know, if it was made in the US, that's enough. They don't actually ask. Anything about the parts and components, they have kind of a waiver for that, that provision. So they're talking about repealing that waiver. And then the third thing they're going to do, they want to get at anyway is the so-called substantial transformation requirement, which will be difficult for them. That, that means, you know, basically where was the product manufactured and how do you decide if it's an American? And I think this grows out of a court case, uh, that was decided last year involving a pharmaceutical company and a hepatitis drug. And the company wanted to sell the drug to the Department of Veterans Affairs, federal procurement, right? And the Department of Veterans Affairs ruled that because the the main ingredient, the active pharmaceutical ingredient came from India, it didn't qualify, even though the pill was made in New Jersey. And the court reversed that decision. The court said that because it was assembled, if you will, in New Jersey, That made it qualify as an American product for procurement purposes. I think they're probably trying to figure out a way to overrule that. That will have a chain reaction because they'll be overturning global customs procedures about how you count things and how you consider things. If we suddenly start saying that things that used to be considered American no longer are, that has a whole bunch of upstream and downstream implications.
2: Yeah. Look, one of the reasons that I've stuck with trade policy as long as I have in my career is I love the irony. And (laughs) so we start off with a piece of irony is that one of uh, President Trump's sort of keystone themes of his presidency was buy America and he wasn't doing it hard enough. So, so now we're going to, we've got to do it harder. So we're going to buy back America better we're going to buy more america or something uh, so that I, that I find hilarious now let let's set aside for the fact that when you buy america you you are basically promising to get less for more all right uh, and as a taxpayer, I would prefer if the government's main objective was t- to get the stuff they needed as inexpensively as possible and consume fewer tax dollars or put less uh, on my kids' credit cards in terms of national debt. But that aside, Bill's right that the Biden approach to uh, Buy America is In some cases, it's a broader scope because it covers procurement, that is, contracts. It covers all the transport sectors, including transport services, the so-called Jones Act or Merchant marine uh, Act of 1920. And it talks a lot about waivers, uh, eliminating waivers and, and exclusions. Now, that's the part where this gets interesting because there were, for instance, some of the comments yesterday from administration officials on it. They talked about defense procurement. Well, a lot of times defense procurement is excluded, and sometimes for good reason. For instance, the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35, has major components assembled by our treaty allies, and that was part of the the way we negotiated them buying a certain number of airplanes. So there's a lot there's a lot of fairly complicated contracting that is behind what the different agencies do. So it would be interesting to see how they resolve that. Second issue that is unknown and unresolved is the treatment of Canada. Uh, because for many products, because U.S.-Canada economic integration has been going on so long, and in terms of production networks, we're so deeply integrated, it's very hard to pull it apart. Uh, so if, you, if the United States wants to buy an electric vehicle from General Motors, the ones they're making now happen to be made in Oshawa, Ontario. So is that an American product or not? Well, well, they'll have to decide, but I'm just suggesting it gets hard. And in the past, Canada has been able to participate because of its both its treaty ally relationship and its economic integration. Next one is the Government Procurement Act, So, which is we're signatory to the WTO Agreement on Government Procurement. That allows foreign entities to sell into the U.S. market, but it also allows U.S producers to sell to forward governments. And so if we're pulling apart that GPA commitments, you will have some interesting politics from the companies who are now selling abroad who might lose those markets because of whatever action we take. And so finally, this is all going to be sorted out over time. I hope it's done in a transparent manner. It's, it's pretty complicated, as Bill pointed out, to go in and redo rules of origin. I mean, I don't know how you buy an American computer these days if you're going to look at what's inside the uh, circuit boards, but uh, we'll see how they do.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I'm doing my part because last week the local Bethesda Maryland liquor store got its allocation of Kentucky-made Blanton's bourbon, and I bought American. That's my kind of buy
2: America, mm-hmm. but it's also a good value. that It's a way. great it's, value there, there's consumer preference for buying
0: the those products, so I have is fewer any objections. Any bourbon
1: besides America, they can't
0: call it bourbon. Scott is right about this there's There's trade law, right right that you know, I don't know that it needs to be made in Kentucky to be bourbon, but there's certain laws that specify what actually bourbon is. Yes that's wines
2: and spirits are the places where there is absolute control of place names so called geographic indications uh, and so much as champagne is only grown in the champagne region of france and that sparkling wine in california can't be called champagne even the chandon napa that comes from the same plants that were cut and then transplanted into California. But the same goes for bourbon, uh, Kentucky bourbon, Tennessee whiskey are proprietary names and and can't be used every day. Now, whiskey's made a lot of places and the recipe differs pretty dramatically. But place names are are highly protected in spirits.
0: And the spelling of whiskey is actually different in some places that, than others. Well, you know, for those of you who are really interested in this discussion, Scott and I are going to have Mr. Julian Van Winkle the owner of Pappy Van Winkle Bourbon on our podcast, The Reopening, probably by the end of the month. So that's going to be a heck of a discussion because we're really talking in that podcast about industries and how they're dealing with the pandemic and how they're seeing themselves reimagined in the future. But, you know, in all seriousness, you know, this Buy America thing, you know, Scott, you alluded to this. Why would Biden's order make a difference when Trump's efforts in this area didn't? Well, look, Buy America laws have been around since 1933.
2: So we've had both 90 years of practice, which is to Bill's initial point that, that most things that the government buys are already made in America. Certainly, anytime the government is purchasing infrastructure, it's building roads, that's all America made. So there's a lot of procurement now that has been shaped over the past almost 100 years. Okay. The second thing is there's a lot of politics here okay because if you are a congressman who has an industry that is, that benefits from selling to the government and has a, some exceptions or has an agreement with the government about the the american content in the products that qualify for buy america and that gets changed those politics get pretty testy and chippy Pretty, pretty quickly so so this one will not be easy to, to pull apart
0: we'll see how they do but yeah we will I, I mean well so I guess this begs the question bill are there more effective ways to help US manufacturers
1: yes if only because federal procurement is a relatively small piece of the of the economic pie I mean the federal government may be the single largest purchaser in the world but it's still you know it's compared to the the civilian market or the, you know, the non-government market, uh, in fact, one of the issues involving this executive order that I think will, will come out once we see what, the, the details six months from now is if the new requirements, uh, the new content requirement is too high, a lot of companies may not adjust their supply chains. They just may forego selling to the feds because feds don't buy that much. You know, all things considered, if you're making a consumer product, the you know the amount of federal government purchases may be 1 2% of your total sales and the rest of your sales are not subject to these rules and you're going to be asking yourself why should i change my whole supply chain which will be expensive one it costs money to change two it takes time to change because if people get who seem to think that you know well we'll just cancel this contract and we'll sign a new one with somebody else tomorrow and we'll have a new supplier for our yarn if we're making you know a, a fabric product and it doesn't work that way. I mean, first of all, you've got contracts and you can't just break them. And second of all, there are a whole host of inspection and, and, and certification requirements. If it's a product where health is an issue, if it's a pharmaceutical product, you know, the, the government needs to be satisfied about the quality. It needs to be satisfied that it is in fact, it contains real ingredients that, that do what they're advertised to do. And if you're a manufacturer, you want to make sure you're getting quality. You want to make sure that the stuff you're, the components you're getting aren't going to break. There was a prominent case a while back about a, a company that had offshored some of its components production to China. And they were making a uh, pump with a pressure dial that had readings of what the pressure was that you were pumping. And there was a small part inside the dial that was uh, Chinese. And it was made, it ended up being made of a lower quality steel than specifications. Uh, and it would fail and it failed pretty regularly. But the consequence of the failure was that the end product manufacturer took the consumer hit. You know, the consumer thought, well, this thing doesn't work. I'm not going to buy this anymore. And this is a crummy company making a crummy product. Well, it was making a crummy product because one piece that was Chinese didn't measure up the standards. But the, uh, the solution for the guy was to bring manufacturing back on shore because he wanted to restore the credibility of, of his production. Point is that it's expensive to change. It takes time to change. When we did an auto rules of origin study a couple of years ago, one of the car manufacturers said it took them seven years to certify a new supplier. Mm-hmm. So this is not going to happen overnight. And as Scott said, you're, it's probably going to be more expensive.
2: Well, yeah, and that's—it's not unusual that supplier qualification is a major discipline within companies. Finding new suppliers is difficult. Finding quality suppliers is difficult. But Bill made the point about scale. The government buys about. $60 billion worth of stuff a year, that's all procurement, including defense. It's a $21 trillion or $22 trillion economy. And so how much do you adapt for gov- new government demands versus telling them to go find another customer or another supplier?
1: And the cost issue has been debated. I mean, there was a, a very intriguing quote by now former uh, USGR Bob Lighthizer uh, in, I think it was either in this month or in December where he said, you know, if your shirt is going to cost fifty cents more, a dollar more, people will pay that to get an American product. And you know, my kind of reaction to that—you know—if that were true, Walmart would be out of business. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what he's talking about with that.
2: I agree with you. It's a testable proposition, and and the test usually
1: fails. So. Right. Scott's right. There's a lot of politics in this. I mean, and this is a classic case of good politics and and bad economics. Buy America sounds good. People are for it you know, and, and show you how complicated it is. People are for it, and then they go out and buy a Honda. On the other hand, I think last year, the, the, the car that had the highest percentage of American content was a Honda.
0: Sure, exactly. And where are most Hondas made these days? Well, Hondas
2: are made in Marysville. There was actually the Toyota Camry that had the highest U.S. content made was in several Kentucky.
1: That Last year was Honda. Oh,
2: last year was Honda. Again, okay. Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, Tennessee can tell you. But, uh, well, Andrew, I'm really glad we're going to talk with the bourbon people. Yep. I suggest a socially distanced tasting <laughs> I think during so, the podcast. Yeah. Well, I'm, I hope, think I'm hoping new, they're
0: going to send us some product to sample, you know, during, yeah, it's, during we, the... We've got we to be a component of what we do. you got to be, right? How could we have a, a fruitful conversation without that? Yep.
1: I've not been invited. Oh, you're invited.
0: coming for this one, Bill. <laughs> We can't do this one without you. You can't miss it. Yeah, we can't yeah. do this one without you. Let me ask you this. We we talked a little bit about Canada um, at the top of this, but, you know, our friend, Canadian finance minister, Christia Freeland, is a bit concerned by, by America, and maybe she should be. What do you guys think? I definitely think that she should be because Canada has been treated as
2: basically U.S. in many of the US government procurement. So, and these are real jobs and uh, and it's a serious impact. Look, we had a lot of conversations in the prior administration about treatment of our allies and partners. Well, Canada is our closest our largest trading partner, I would say our closest ally. So, on day 1, we had 20,000 energy workers put out of work with the suspension of the Keystone XL pipeline permit. And uh, so th- this will be another blow if they, depending on how they manage it. So I, I understand her concern totally and and think we ought to think about it because there's a lot of things we don't really, we aren't able to make without the Canadians.
0: So this is where CSIS is so great because this isn't just a trade issue, of course, because, you know, President Biden ran on restoring our alliances and, you know, this is one way to hurt One of your most important alliances. So what about it, Bill?
1: Well, there's some bitter experience here, too, that the president will remember because it happened in in 2009 when the Congress was enacting the stimulus bill after the Great Recession. Uh, this issue came up. By America came up, and they put a bunch of provisions in the stimulus program, providing that the, some of the contracts and uh, that would be awarded pursuant to the the stimulus money, particularly for environmental purposes, the products had to be uh, made in America. And relatively quickly, they discovered that there were some communities, I think in Minnesota, that wanted to put in water purification facilities. I think or upgrades. And they discovered that uh, one integral part of what they were doing, which was uh, a pump or a filtration system, had a part that was made only in Canada. And the result was they couldn't buy the part because of the law. And that meant they couldn't build the project right. because that was the only source. So these things have unintended consequences and the Canadians have direct experience with them. Their line, which actually I think is sensible, is we ought to be talking about North American procurement and not American procurement.
2: It's certainly been the economic policy of the U.S. government since the Auto Pact, which was, I think, 1965 or 66. It's been the policy to integrate the two economies, from the Auto Pact to the uh, U.S.-Canada FTA and the Reagan administration to the NAFTA to USMCA. We say we want
0: an integrated economy. Yep. Well, we're going to have to see what happens here with this one. This is going to be one to watch for the trade guys to be sure. Let's shift a little bit to our other allies. Let's talk about the Europeans. Let's talk about Germany specifically backing EU export restrictions on vaccine after supply cuts. Like, what's this all about? So, you know, we're all talking about how Germany's health minister supported European Union proposals to introduce restrictions on COVID-19 vaccines on Tuesday. And this is all the while tensions grew with AstraZeneca and Pfizer Over sudden supply cuts just a month after, you know, the Europeans started vaccinating citizens. So is is this an ominous sign of things to come? Look, I think this is kind of a it's an
2: economic uh, problem in that in in all these big economies that have chosen the quarantine shutdown until the vaccine is available, there's a major economic effect on whether you're open or closed and then most economies most most people think the key to reopening is is getting enough vaccination in your population to either develop immunity or to reduce the case fatality of covid to something you know like the seasonal flu all right so whatever your standards are everybody wants the vaccine now the good news is we had this this nearly miraculous scientific program that produced a vaccine less than eleven months after identifying the genomic sequence of the pathogen. So that's that in and of itself is, is miraculous. But scaling up and distributing to basically the world, because the whole world has got this disease at the moment or is, is is exposed to it, scaling up is a big problem. And as we saw during the initial stages of the panic associated with COVID, borders closed down very quickly. The European single market was not a single market for Eight to 14 weeks after the uh, pathogen was identified and the illness started to expand. Yeah, it becomes everyone for themselves pretty quickly. Yes, and and that's that's true. So economic nationalism was not something that was created by President Trump, nor did it go to Florida with him when he left office. It's been with us a long time, and it it happens in situations like this. It tends to make things worse. That's the reason you ought to try to avoid it. Uh, is a make things worse, but it's it's hard to uh,
0: fight the panic. Well, we we're not imposing export restrictions. The US is not. That's correct. Right. So we're not doing that. We're not trying to hoard vaccines. In fact, we're trying to figure out a way to contribute vaccines to the world. So how are we looking at our, you know, European friends when they're doing this? You know, this can't be good. This can't be this this can't be something that, you know, with a scarce resource like this, that's the key to the health and safety of all people in the world and the economies of the world. How are we going to approach this issue vis-a-vis our European allies?
1: My guess is that we're not in any table-pounding, frothing-at-the-mouth way. The president wants to rebuild the European relationship. Yeah, the, the, You don't start by digging them on some uh, on something like this, I mean, this is—it's—it's it's exactly what Scott said. This is the recurrence of panic. We went through this last March and April, where people were panicking about masks, about PPE. We worked our way through that. People eventually figured out that. It doesn't work so well when you try to hoard. It creates surpluses when you don't need them, and it creates shortages when you when you definitely don't don't want them. The best thing to do is to maintain your supply chains, maintain your channels, and get all the stuff out as fast as possible. I think you know what happens is the panic subsides. More of the vaccine will come online a month from now. We'll be talking about something else. I suspect the administration's not going to get bent out of shape about this particular case. And I mean, maybe they'll say something like, you know, it would probably be better not to do that, but I don't think that anybody's going to be uh, paranoid about it. Well, that's
0: good because, you know, all we're talking about now is shortage of vaccine. And, you know, even this morning I heard Andrew Cuomo on television talking about how if he had enough vaccine, he could vaccinate everybody in New York within a month. And you know, yesterday I heard another senior state official say a very similar thing. So, you know, it, it's maybe that's wishful thinking. Maybe no one's really that organized. Look, we're 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 doing well here. We have two in the market,
2: two being distributed. You know, injections in in patients' arms. We have a third on its way from Johnson and Johnson. That's about a week away from potentially emergency approval. That is a single dose. Yeah, that's the magic shot everybody's waiting for. And it it does not require frozen transport to exactly. be transported refrigerated. So much easier to distribute than the than the first two. So look, the the advances are happening. We we just got to maintain calm while we're doing this and not create more problems through panic than already exist with the difficulty of of making and distributing the products.
0: Scott, that is so right. In fact, our colleague, Steve Morrison, and I on our podcast, The Coronavirus Crisis Update, Take as Directed podcast, which you know we do weekly with top global health experts. Um, this week, we talked to Dr. Celine Gounder. Dr. Gounder, of course, was part of the Biden task force on COVID. And she said exactly that that one of the number one things we need to do, if not the number one thing we need to do right now is lower the rhetoric. We need to calm everybody down. We need to get grounded here because we have a lot of work to do and that work isn't going to get made any easier by the kind of breathless you know, rhetoric that's going back and forth over this. And yes, there's a lot of urgency and a lot of people are feeling uncertain, but I think your words are are really wise and I hope that, you know, more people will heed them. Bill, you're awfully quiet over there.
1: I'm just contemplating the wisdom of what Scott said. Yeah. Well, me, I'm
2: on two waiting lists for vaccines. There so you go. if I get a text message in the middle of uh, the podcast, you're out of, of here. The <laughs> podcast, I'm I'm going to get my shot. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Bill Bill, you're on the waiting list too, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, I'm uh I'm old, so I qualify, but I don't think anything's gonna happen very soon. Yeah. Well Yeah, I'm I'm old enough, put it that way. Oh man, (laughs) I
0: I am not old enough and I'm waiting, you know, patiently. And, um, someone asked me like, you know, if I've been anywhere the other day and I said, yeah, I've been to Rockville, Maryland. (laughs) That was a bad, hit, a bad. Hit. And it's lovely in January, <laughs> right? <laughs> I drove all the way from Bethesda to Rockville, Maryland. So it's you a know, garden spot. Hey, man, <laughs> you know we're all we're all. Hey, everybody's healthy, so you know we're, we're can, doing what we can. Can't complain. Let's talk quickly before we wrap, guys. China investment. China overtakes the United States as the world's leading destination for foreign investment, huh?
2: Well, look, I uh, put it in context. First of all, there are two ways to measure direct investment, stocks and flows. The stocks are the total amount of investment of foreigners in a given country. That's, that's your stock of foreign direct investment. The flow is the annual amount that enter, enters. So what came in this year? And this past year, China had greater foreign direct investment flows than the United States. So stocks, the U.S. is still in a very strong position. Now, what drives flows? Well, first thing that drives flows is economic growth and expansion because the reason foreign enterprises would invest more in any economy is to try to keep pace with the economic growth. Uh, The second thing is the sort of the structure or composition of the economy itself. So in both cases, China had a temporary advantage. First, They appeared to recover from the COVID crisis faster and produced greater economic growth on average than the United States for 2020. Second, the composition of the Chinese economy is more industrial in its nature. The United States has moved, as we all know from our tech stock performance, to a more asset-light, technology-driven. Even the manufacturing economy uses fewer assets but that's less investment than it used to so on both counts it's not surprising that one year China would uh, exceed the United States doesn't mean anything's wrong with investment in the United States still a lot of financial flows here and we still have an open investment environment which is really what you
1: want to sustain that over time. Invest in Johnson and Johnson yes, right you can see it coming I mean it's you know they got four times as many people as we do. Right. Uh, it's only a matter of time before their economy is going to be bigger than ours. I mean, if you treat it as a race, we're going to lose. We don't have the size. It's not a race. You know, it, it, this is a quality issue, not a quantity issue.
2: And as long as you're doing what you need to do to attract foreign investment, and the U.S. consensus is that means having an open investment policy, having good treatment of investors, and good security for that investment itself. So you're you're treated fairly. Your money's treated fairly.
0: We'll be fine. Hey, we got bourbon. We got baseball. We got football. We got rock and roll. What could be better? And we've got the 5th and 14th
2: Amendments to the Constitution. We guarantee everybody fair treatment. So those are good things.
1: One more thing before you get off. Hopefully today we are putting out a critical questions piece on Buy America. Oh, So if you want more information about what we were talking about a few minutes ago, Go to the website, look it up. And for
0: those of you who subscribe, it'll go right to your inbox. Exactly. All right, guys. This has been, as always, um, really interesting. We will see you next week. Same trade time, same trade channel, and be well.
2: Thanks. Adios.
0: To our listeners.